Hello. How are you, sir? I'm good. How are you? I'm I'm very good. I'm in my office, which is unusual for me report recording a podcast. Wow. Well, I'm at home, which is um, I don't know, se- semi regular. So now, do you have do you have identical podcasting setups in both locations? Because I thought about this as I was last night disassembling my, my <laughs> podcasting setup and packing it up. And then this morning as I was hauling it to my office and then setting it back up and, you know, miraculously I didn't break anything and, and it all still works, but it just, it just seems, uh, it just seems like a lot of work. So I don't have the identical, but I don't, I also don't transport. So I, mm-hmm. I I'm currently talking to you on the Plantronics Dan Benjamin recommended uh, headset, and I have my full podcast, uh, you know, good headphones and good microphone in my office uh, on campus. So, so I kind of like sometimes it, it may sound, and actually, when I do the um, listen back to the audio, it I, I can tell a difference between my at home and in the office sound, but I, I think only only me and you and the diehards could <laughs> could pick it up. <laughs> okay, because I because I I uh, I have I've moved because I tended uh, lately it seems like I've been doing more podcasting from home than from work, um, so I've moved my Plantronics headset to work. But then I just I didn't want to I didn't want to show up and and not sound as good as I possibly could sound. I guess that doesn't matter to you. Uh, no, because I feel like I don't sound very good, regardless. Yeah, uh, which 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 makes me think of my uh, my karaoke song, uh, which uh, apparently a lot of people were in favor of. Because absolutely. <laughs> uh, so yeah, no, I'm I'm like uh, I, I have a very low uh, bar of expectation uh, for my voice for actually most of my life, and <laughs> but my. My voice on the podcast included. Um, so, uh, so yeah, just, uh, I just roll with what's with, with kind of what's here. I'd like to buy <laughs> a set, like another set of podcast recording equipment for home, like mm-hmm. the, the awesome boom mic and, mm-hmm. and the, the headphones that we have. Um, but I'm, I'm actually more afraid that, that that will end up as a toy for the children. Oh yeah. Uh, that could be, that could be a problem. Yeah, I feel like they'll hang on it, so or something, because I would have to, you know, fasten it to the table that I use and all that kind of well, stuff. It, so actually, yeah, it it is very attractive to kids, as I can I can vouch for, because when my sons, who are who are far too old to be hanging on things, um, walked into my home office one day and saw my podcasting setup, they're like, "Wow, <laughs> that's like that looks really professional," <laughs> and they wanted to play with it, right? No, but you know what? Um, my my younger son, because of listening to uh, Roderick on the line, um, and and seeing my setup, he has become inspired to do a podcast with his friends about nothing. So awesome. um, they recorded their first episode, uh, and this. So he lives in Denver now, and his friends um, uh, still live in. New, you know, he has friends in Denver, obviously, but he, some of his old old friends from high school still live uh, in New Jersey, and so this is an excuse for them to get together and talk and and have a podcast. So I, I don't know. I don't know if he's figured out how to make it into a podcast, and much less upload it into iTunes. But anyway, I was excited that uh, that that he had done that, inspired perhaps indirectly inspired by me. 
Well, we should add add this to the list for follow up because I'd like to listen to your uh, in the the fruit of your loins in, <laughs> and inspired you inspiring the the podcast. I'm I'm looking forward to this. That, that is such a, a dorky phrase. It is. It really is. I'm I'm full of dorky phrases. fruit and loins, loins uh, and then you put yeah. them together in the same phrase. Oh. It's, it's true. I you know what you know what's not a dorky phrase though. Um, or a dorky <laughs> meal is poor tenderloin with uh, like some sort of an apple sauce. Oh, which would be a fruit loin, loin, loin fruit. Yes, yeah. exactly. I'm I'm a big fan of that. I've been I've been making a lot of pork tenderloin lately, <laughs> and and also not every once in a while I'll do like a fruit sauce. Uh, with it, so so there. So I'll, I'll let me bring it back. Let me let me. Sh- I'll, I'll, I see your dorkiness comment, and I raise that uh, meal preparation. All right, all right. Well played, Doctor. <laughs> Thank ben- you, Doctor Benjamin. Well played. <laughs> um, hey, so so I have. Um, oh, that's. I can't turn my head that way. Do you hear? Does it sound like it's windy in my office? You hear that? Oh, it does. Yeah, yeah. very windy. There's, there's a fan. There's a fan. That's right. Okay, I'm gonna have to uh, uh, um, avoid that. Oh, so here's some follow up. Let me tell you what, because uh, I know our listeners love to know what we're eating and drinking. <laughs> and in fact, if we if we look at, at the the story arc of our podcast, that this is really relatively new. I would say, um, you know, we we are now into season three. The end of season three, in my mind, the end of season two and and uh, the start of of season three have really been about what we're eating and drinking. <laughs> So, so anyway, I I need to. This is follow up, and it's not. It actually matters. Um, Doctor Indian clarified butter. Um, one of our one of our listeners who I refuse to to try to butcher his name uh, on the podcast again. Aaron Aaron you you provided me with some Tassimo coffee pods, and I mentioned this uh, uh, on the last episode but i'm actually drinking one again so uh he he, he was able to provide me with some uh tim horton's uh coffee pods and i'm i'm you'll you'll hear a, a sip here in a second like i slurped it like soup there um and that's what i'm that's what i'm drinking got a little uh, little tim horton's coffee pod thank you to dr indian clarified butter <laughs> well that's so nice of him it was it was really nice it was his way of sponsoring the podcast as he said yes very yeah. nice his way of sponsoring Half of the podcast. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, details, Don. Details. It's true. Um, so yeah, so there's 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 a little little follow up. Uh, what's going What's going on? What's What's been happening with you since last time we talked? Well, in the in the beverage department, um, I had I had a, a Starbucks coffee, and then um, we're running a short course this week, uh, Introduction to Food Science short course which lasts all week long, which uh, I coordinate as part of my job as extension specialist. Um, But this is a great short course because I don't teach any of it. Uh, All I got to do is show up in the morning and the beginning of the afternoon and introduce the speaker. And and then it it just it flows magically from there. Um, I'm ultimately I'm overall responsible. And, you know, in the event that somebody is not a good speaker, I have to fire them or, or not invite them back and I have to find a replacement. But. Um, yeah, and, and oh, but but the, my, the point is, is that that is catered by uh, Twin Oaks Catering uh, here in New Jersey, which is a decent catering company, but they have god awful coffee. So I'm on my second cup of coffee, and I've gone from delicious Starbucks to, um, well, it has caffeine, <laughs> and I I put milk and sh- and sugar in it, and you know, so it's 
drinkable, but anyway, not very good um, uh, Twin Oaks coffee. Can can you be sure that it has caffeine? You, mm. you you're guessing. I mean, I'm I'm always leery of meeting coffee, and it's and and, and the fact that the person who's making it um, clearly doesn't care about taste of coffee. So I assume that they also don't care about wh- whether or not it's decaf or not. I feel like I've been burned on that. I'm. I, I, I've not rec- I've you know had something thinking it was not decaf and it it was decaf and and I've stocked myself up on it and and it's not worked out at all. <laughs> um, I'm uh, I'm pretty sure. Uh, that based on at least I, I can kind of taste what decaf coffee tastes like. This does not taste like decaf coffee. I think they also do provide a separate smaller pot of decaf. So usually when there's two, I'm, I'm pretty sure that they've got it right. Um, and then based on, it's too early to tell right now whether it has caffeine based on its physiological effect, but I can say based on the last couple of days of drinking it, it certainly has the desired physiological effect. Oh, okay. Well, then uh, excellent. Nice. Uh, you're, you're a bit of a clinical study. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a and, case case control study without and, uh, with one case and no controls. It's right, N equals one, hundred percent response. Ah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, nerds, nerds. So, um, well, that's that's cool. So the uh, the short course is this is this day this is day three. This of is the short this course? is this is day three. What's colors, day? colors, and flavors. Ooh, excellent. That's uh, that's exciting. So, did you? Um, were you responsible to to teach other parts of this short course? Is it just today that you're uh, manning the? No, 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 no. It, the course runs all week. Um, okay. It's four and a half days, and um, I just I'm the coordinator, and I just show up and awesome. and and be the master of ceremonies. Well, that's exciting. Yeah. I, you know, do you know in in a when you you mentioned that? Do you know in like a, a former iteration of uh, my career planning? That I actually thought that I might be a professional master of ceremonies. <laughs> really? What? Is that a, is that a thing? That's a straight. I'm, I'm not sure it's a thing, but it's a straight. I've um, I, I have been the master of ceremonies at multiple weddings. Oh, okay, sure. So, uh, and, and this is like multiple, like as in five. Wow. Yeah. If, if only I'd known that, Ben. <laughs> I would have. Uh... If I get invited to do it again, which I. Seriously, I may, I may, I may get married again just to have you do that. Well, no, I want you to come be my. Uh, you and I are we're a much better team than I was. Alone. <laughs> okay, so I could be your your master of ceremonies in training. Well, no, I think junior. I, I, oh no, you give me equal billing. Give you equal billing. <laughs> oh, awesome! I'm there. Yeah, and I would. Uh, I think it, we we just. I think we work well together in this format. Now, of course, we'd have to Skype in. <laughs> I don't right. think it would be a problem. I, I don't think so. I mean, all the kids are into the digital, you yeah. know, virtual age these days, right? Damn, their their wedding might be virtual. Mm. <laughs> I'm, I, that's possible. Who knows? I don't know what goes it, on. It might. It might be. Um, we didn't. I, uh, this is a you know er, a nice early morning podcast for those who are who are actually listening or have listened up to this point. Um, so things get sometimes get goofy with Don and I in the in the mornings <laughs> and in the evenings and pretty much any time. Um, I, so I, I don't know if I've ever shared this with you, but I, um, so I'm married. Uh, I've mentioned, I, I, I believe I've met your wife. You have the, the you're, married, you're married to a lady, married to a lady, a love, a lovely, uh, uh, even lovely though, female. Even, even though her name is, is, could be a guy's name. 
well it, in um, in Spain or in Mexico, yeah. Um, so 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 Danielle uh, and I um, we got married. Um, uh, I guess very uh, ha- hastily. I'm not sure if that's the right adjective. <laughs> Um, anyway, we we uh, we got married. We were not uh, planning on getting married, and then uh, when uh, we decided we would move to the U.S. after we looked at sort of logistics of health insurance, and if I was in an accident and getting into an emergency room, and all, or if she was, all those kinds of things, it became clear and clear that it would be much easier logistically uh, if we got married. So we got we we. Uh, learned and made a decision on this on a Friday while we were here in North Carolina and then drove back to Canada. That was before I'd started my, my job at NC State. Drove back to Canada on Monday, went and figured out how to actually get married quickly and got a marriage certificate and were married the next Friday. Um, I, 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 you know, that's weird. I had, I've always had in my head, well, you guys have been together as a couple a very, very long time, but I, I, I that's interesting. I had not, I it had not clicked in my head that you guys only just got married before, essentially before you moved to North Carolina. Yeah, it, it was it very, yeah, very, um, like, uh, I, I guess it was five, no, like three months before we moved. Yeah, it was, it was quick, hmm. uh, but, but we, we didn't. So uh, why, why am I telling this story? It's <laughs> <laughs> I think the listeners are probably wondering the same thing, man. I'm not sure I can answer. No, it has to do with my my wedding MC abilities. I would had we had it, it, it for us, we weren't really interested in having a you know a big wedding and to try and turn something like that around in five days is probably not doable. Um, so there was only six of us uh, in attendance, uh, and the other uh, attendees didn't know that they were coming to a wedding. <laughs> so. We tricked our friends into being our witnesses um, and uh, got married at the Evergreen Senior Center in Guelph, Ontario. Um, and uh, it was a, a long weekend, a holiday weekend, and invited our uh, our friends over to go play disc golf, frisbee golf. I, I was wondering how you would get six unsuspecting people to the Evergreen Senior Center. Well, we, we they showed up at our house. And we gave them each uh, wrapped presents. Like one was a disposable camera, one was uh, a pen. Um, there was like some confetti or something. And then uh, said, "Oh, hey, we've got you know. Can you guys open these up?" And they're like, "What is this? What what are we doing?" And then we told them, "We're like, oh, instead of going to play golf, we're going to go get married right now. Um, would you guys mind being our witnesses?" Uh, and at so that, that point, it was too late for them to back out. I mean, clearly uncomfortable. So so at at that point, we went and got married, and then we went out for this really nice uh, meal afterwards, just the six of us. And then I, uh, I guess I emceed my own wedding because I uh, tried to lead uh, our we uh, uh, lead the conversation uh, uh, around dinner and progress the um, the agenda of the meal. So, so I, I that was I, I guess I count that. As as uh, emceeing master ceremonies, uh, num- number six in my uh, wedding uh, history book of, of of weddings that I have um, uh, not not officiated, I guess just been the master of ceremonies for, like you are with the short course. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly like that. <laughs> so anyway, anyway, that's uh, that, that's a bit of my uh, little bit of my history. Well, that um, that that is fascinating. <laughs> I'm sure it is. I'm sure it's fascinating for everyone. Ah, so um, I I have one more bit of follow up, which is which is not food safety related, but it is food related. Um, 
And so I bought uh, – so on Friday of last week, um, our – uh, cafeteria here in the building was um, was closed because they had to wax the floors. Um, and there's another, uh, like a cafe that's in, you know, eh, probably five minutes walk. And they were also closed. And so essentially for Friday, on, on Friday, last Friday for lunch, I had food out of the vending machine. And, and the, I, I bought uh, a packet of Cheetos because that's kind of like my, you know, um, what do you call it? Indulgent vending machine food. And the top of the container was like ripped open, like just a little bit. But I was like, okay, I'm, I'm quite sure that these, these uh, Cheetos are going to be stale. And they were. And as I like to sometimes do, I like to call, it's not, I don't really do it enough to call it a hobby, but professionally, I'm interested in what happens when you call a toll-free number on the back of a package and have a question about, you know, is this food been recalled or this food doesn't taste good or whatever. So I called the, the lovely people at Cheetos, which is, which is Frito-Lay. And I had a very nice chat with a, with a gentleman by the name of Brad who works in consumer relations. And I gave him all the information, like the package, you know, that all the identifying information and where I got it from and all of this. And he sent me a very nice coupon for good for any Frito-Lay product for one item up to $4 and 29 cents. And so I just want to say thanks to Fritos for doing a good job with customer relations. Wow, that's that's pretty cool. Uh, yeah, I just I figured I would share that with this sitting right here on my on my desk, so it's right in my line of sight. But it is it is a sort of, sort of a form of follow up, and it is sort of food safety or at least food industry related. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's good. I'm always um, when I was in grad school, there were a couple times where. Um, we got questions into the the phone line that that we ran in the in the lab uh or something came up on you know an, an internet story where i called um customer service of a of a food company to ask some you know questions and it wasn't you know the, the, your your experience on um you know very specific you know i had some I, I, this is what the, you know, this is the problem with, you know, as a consumer, I, I wasn't sort of posing as a consumer, but I was you know, sort of asking questions. Someone put out a press release and I'd call and, and find, find out what was going on. And I, I always found that, um, I, you know, I don't think I had a, a bad experience calling any companies. Now they couldn't always answer my question, but the, the folks, you know, that, that man the lines in, uh, in any of the experiences that I had were very, really wanted to help me, <laughs> which is nice. You know, that, that's, that's good, good, um, good customer service. Um, and, and would do, I, I can't remember if it was General Mills. Uh, it must have been, yeah, it must have been General Mills because I, I think we talked about this. This is actually a piece of follow up from, a, you know, way back in like episode 11 or 12 or something um, where we talked about uh, infant botulism. But we had, we had a call about um, Honey Nut Cheerios and the honey, you know, the honey glaze that's on those Honey Nut Cheerios and whether they, uh, that glaze um, could be a source of uh, botulinum spores and should you eat, feed kids honey nut Cheerios and, and all that kind of stuff. And I remember sort of meandering my way through the phone um, process with the, uh, uh, with general mills. And they were, they were very just um, not, not sort of robotic and automatic and uh, reading off a script. Like I, I just felt uh, that I, I had, a, I guess a similar kind of experience that you did and it was nice. So, so yeah, to them, to those who do those things. Exactly. 
Uh, so, so should we? Do you have any more follow up? Well, I have some. I have some stuff that's in show notes that's kind of follow up. Okay. That, that's been added. So I'd, I'd like to talk about Tempe. Okay. But, but um, if, well, but, uh, we uh, the co- I guess the question is when do we do bug trivia? Shoot, we better do bug trivia now. Okay. Um, let me. <coughs> mm, I just had to get the C there. Mm? Bug trivia. Bug trivia. That was nice. The little thing at the end you did there with your voice, that was really nice. Uh, vibrato? Yeah. It's called. So, so we have we, – we've prepared um, – we're ready for the next phase of bug, bug trivia, but we have the, the last bit of old bug trivia to do today. So this, this is the end of an era, um, and, and we're going to go out with a bang. Um, so the last uh, bug to talk about in, in bug trivia is Toxoplasma gondii. And uh, I'm, I'm read, I'll read here from what um, uh, Carl Custer, our, our bug trivia reporter, has written. He says, uh, I haven't done much with T. gondii. Doobie, I guess that's a friend of his, spelled D-U-B-E-Y, uh, Doobie at ARS Beltsville did several experiments to see if the prescribed Turkina treatments were sufficient to inactivate the protozoan. They were. If you wish, there's a... A 2011 review article that I can send to you, um, and uh, we will um, we'll search for this and we'll link to it in the show notes. But it's basically an article. the fir- The first author is Benny Am- Amino, um, and it was published in Foodborne Pathogens and Disease in, in 2011, and it was titled "Toxoplasma in Animals, Food, and Humans: An Old Parasite of New Concern." Um, and then the other thing too, if we if we're going to talk about Toxoplasma gondii, of course we have to mention uh, fan of the show Mike Batts and the risk ranking that he did at the Emerging Pathogens Institute there in Florida. Uh, Toxoplasma gondii um, in that um, uh, risk ranking was the number two overall pathogen, just ranked simply in terms of pathogen uh, severity uh, based on quality-adjusted life years. And it pr- pretty it's because of the high uh, fatality rate as well as the, the consequences of, of infection. Um, and then in, in terms of their product pathogen pairs, um, the, in that article they, they ranked toxoplasma in pork as number two overall. And then also I want to say as a callback to food safety talk number four, the fourth episode, which I did with uh, Mike Batts as a guest, um, um, uh, although, and, and because you were we, this, early in the in the show, we we each of us had had missed episodes, so each of us recorded an episode without the other, and this was my my version of that with with Mike Batts, and of course we talked about Pittsburgh, where uh, where he had worked for for many years, hence the title of the episode "Ode to a Pittsburgh," um, but uh, also talked about. T. gondii and why it ended up being ranked so so high in uh, in the overall ranking, and then in just in terms of rounding out Toxoplasma gondii, it was featured fairly recently on uh, one of my favorite uh, podcasts. That's the Back to Work podcast on Five by Five, where uh, Merlin and, and Dan uh, in episode one twenty two of that of that podcast, the Crowbar of Loyalty, uh, talked about um, the fact that. Uh, according to some people, and I've talked with bats about this as well, that uh, the toxoplasma parasite may trigger schizophrenia. It may trigger bipolar disorder. Some people think that um, part of the reason why crazy cat ladies are in fact crazy is because of toxoplasma and, and, and the cats and it kind of gets into their brain and causes them to have more cats. So anyway, 
it, it's a it's a it's a it's a fun one to end uh, this run of bug trivia on. Yeah, and it's it, I, I think it's a, a, a fitting one because um, you know, like, like you mentioned with the the work that Baths did, that that risk ranking kind of I mean we. You know, Toxoplasma gondii has been known for a long time, but that rank got it a lot of um, coverage, got a lot of kind of blue, and because it, it came out um, maybe six or eight months before some of the uh, schizophrenia bipolar stuff uh, came out of Leeds, I think it was, in the UK. But it, it's not a foodborne pathogen that has really you know, risen on the public attention side of things, but but it's, you know, to me, one of the more emerging focus um, pathogens, uh, especially in the in the meat area, especially in, with ethnic ethnic foods for you know for the next uh, few years, uh, because we're uh, because of this you know because of some of the attention that's come up. So so I guess it's kind of fitting to end on that to lead into um, what we're going to do next, which is a look back into history uh, of uh, of food uh, microbiology and and food safety um, with the hundred year starting with the hundred year document uh, from uh, IFP from a couple of years ago that that Carl also had a hand in. So did Michelle Dan- Danilock. So um, nice nice choice for, to end on. Um, and it's because he's the only one left. <laughs> yes. It, it made it seem like we picked it that we made it happen. Exactly. I'm, not, I'm not sure I made a very good case for that, but that's in, in my, my crazy mind. That's how it was working. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe you have toxoplasmosis. <laughs> that is entirely possible. Although my affinity for raw pork or raw lamb, uh, coupled with my, uh, um, I guess lack of opinion for those two things, coupled with my um, dis- distaste of cats, makes it unlikely. Mm, you have been eating a lot of pork tenderloin lately. True, I'm pretty uh, pretty handy with that old Comark PDT 300. Though, <laughs> do try to uh, um, pay attention to cross contamination because because those are my those are my things. That's what I that's what I do. That's what drives Danny crazy when I cook. My attention to detail of not getting sick. Uh, so you, so you like the you like the PDT three hundred, huh? Do you like PDT three hundred? Are you? Let's. I, I like it. Now you're you're an eye grill guy. Well, I have an eye grill, um, and then I also really like the uh, thermo pen. I think it's called, um, which is uh, which is a much like kind of fancier than the PDT three hundred. So the thermo pens are like run eighty five hundred bucks um i'm i'm thinking from looking at the pdt 300 is probably less than that yeah about two, about 20 bucks yeah get them at a restaurant supply store give them out to all the the agents take them to talks and stuff like that it's well about- yeah and if you're if you're gonna do a giveaway it's much better to give away a 20 dollar thermometer than to give away a hundred dollar thermometer it, I, I maybe i mean it depends on who you are kanye west he might be giving away a hundred dollar um thermometer i'm no kanye though <laughs> um, so, so, so yeah, but I, that's, that's my thermometer of choice. Um, I like it. Uh, and, and really this, so the, the, this leads into something that, that we have in the show notes. The reason why that's my thermometer of choice is cause it's the one that, that Pete Snyder, uh, oh, oh, Pete Snyder, um, has kind of, uh, Promoted, um, used as a, as an example of a a low cost uh, 
tip sensitive digital thermometer that really does the job uh, in retail uh, food safety. And um, and Pete, the reason why I wanted to um, to jump into this uh, this time is because because Pete announced uh, last week that that he's retiring from the world of um, food safety uh, consulting. He's still uh, uh, he's 80, 84 years old um, and still plans on um, being active uh, in in writing things. But he's uh, sort of closing his shop and um, and not not doing so much traveling and, and workshops. But at, at 84, I mean, that's it's kind of amazing that he's doing lots of stuff um, at that age anyway. Um, but he's he's had some some health issues and, and there was uh, he, he announced his retirement on the to a group of uh, you know undisclosed group of folks who, who got an email and then that email made its rounds through the food safe listserv and a couple other uh, listservs that I'm on and the the outpouring of um, uh, accolades to Pete um, as a, a as a scientist and as someone who's really moved uh, the world of food safety especially at retail um, uh, uh, looking at um, hazards and, and trying to come up with management strategies to address those hazards and hand washing and hand dryers. And I mean, just, just a lot of the stuff that, that I've, um, spent my time on in the last 10 years has, has always had this little bit of peat, uh, uh, influence on it right up until the Comark PDT 300. So, I mean, just from, um, I, I want to, uh, you know, officially, and publicly sort of uh, um, you know, thank him for, for everything that he's done for food safety. And there's not, I'm, I'm not into, you know, stuff like this there where, you know, folks get awards or anything like that. Um, and uh, because they've been around for a long time, but man, Pete has um, absolutely influenced what I do on a daily basis. So. Yeah. And I, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I want to just echo that. I think we, we gave him, uh, some uh, one of the the board related IAFP awards. I think we gave him lifetime membership, um, which you give to people um, technically after they retire. And I think technically we gave it to him before he retired. But man, the guy's eighty something. So um, and I, I have to say as well, I learned this was very, it was very interesting. The way that this happened is I learned about this. Um, by going to his uh, website, the 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 uh, HITM uh, website, and because I was looking for something, um, and and p- this website is just a tremendous repository of information related to food safety. And I was doing a, it was something I've, I'm working on. The, the stuff that Pete has done over the years touches on so much of the work that I do that I can't remember exactly what it was. It might have been something. You know what it was? I'm working on an article right now with colleagues from the CDC on cooling in restaurants. And of course, there's not a lot published on cooling in restaurants. And one of the, I mean, uh, our friend uh, Michelle Daniluk with Amy Simone did some stuff on cooling of, of beans and, and clostridium perfringens risk there. But Pete has some stuff on pan depth and, 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 you know, the depth of the food in the pans. And it's relevant to this article that I'm writing. And so I went to the HITM website where, of course, he has a scan of the dairy food and environmental sanitation 
article, which is probably the only way you're going to find a copy of that article. And in doing that, I, I, I moved back to the homepage of the, the Hospitality Institute of Technology and Management, HITM, which is his website, and I saw the message um, saying that he retired. And then within a few days, I also saw um, the, the message on, on Barf Blog and, and, and things circulating that way. And, um, I, you know, I just I want to I want to echo the, 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 the same point is that Pete has been um, just a tremendous uh, influence um, on, on me in terms of the thinking. And I <clears throat> excuse me, I put a comment uh, at the bottom of the Barf blog post, which which I'll, I'll share with people because it really it really is, is heartfelt. Uh, and I, so and I'll, I'll read with a little bit of editing here. It says. Uh, what I wrote was Pete's willingness to engage with anyone on any food safety talk topic and to call BS where he sees it have been an inspiration to me. And of course, Pete is too much of a gentleman to ever say what BS stands for, but 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 I'm not, or at least on on Barf Blog, I I, I, I uh, censored it a little bit. But the point is, is that Pete was not afraid to say when something was stupid or wrong, and the fact that. Things could be stupid or wrong or the fact that regulations could be um, not grounded in science it has been a returning theme in my work. And I, I, think I, can, I think I can blame, for better or worse, I can blame Pete for that. But that's, um, that's not a bad thing, right? We need to, we need to have people that, that understand that, that that's the case. And I got into it a little bit on another discussion with somebody when Doug posted about cooking temperatures for fish. And I said, well, okay, so if you think those cooking temperatures are not safe, what's your evidence? And they cited the serve safe manual. And it's like, well, okay, but that's not science, right? Show me the, show me the science that says that this is a safe cooking recommendation for fish. And the person responded, well, the, our, the, the, the serve safe document's been peer reviewed. It's like, well, that's not what I'm looking for. Though. I'm looking for a logical reason, not a bunch of experts who think, yeah, this is what the number should be. Well, yeah, I want some science. I want some, I want, I want some data. Yeah, exactly. And Pete, uh, um, he, he was, I mean, uh, out of, you know, I, I think there's a lot of people that have, that have influenced what, you know, my direction and, and things that, um, that I produce that what you, you just kind of, related there is exactly why I look to the primary literature for food safety info sheet recommendations. When I started making those things and I was, um, you know, it just finishing up a master's degree and really was, was new to the world of food safety. I started with looking to USDA and FDA and health Canada. Well, cause I was in Canada at the time and CDC and whatever the, whatever the numbers were out there or whatever their recommendations were for, you know, whatever cooking temperatures, uh, creating a, um, a, a bleach solution for sanitizing what, you know, whatever it was, that was the first part that I, that I looked at. And I started making these info sheets with, with this, you know, what you can do to control things. And probably the first two or three, I got back these like, lengthy email, very thoughtful email messages from Pete, but you know, I'm, I'm talking, you know, a thousand words. Like this wasn't a, just a, Hey, this is wrong. He, but, but I think he, I mean, he didn't know me at all. He didn't, um, he, he just happened to see this, uh, cause I'd 
put it out on food safe or somewhere and he t- he took the time to say look i think you got a bunch of stuff wrong here and here's why i think it's wrong here's the data behind why i'm telling you it's wrong and you need to fix it or you need to show me where you got data because i think it's magical <laughs> you know and um and and that you know for for a while before i kind of got in the groove of what it is i wanted these things to look like i really just wanted to avoid these long email messages back from pete like <laughs> will this food safety info sheet meet the pete test is it gonna is it gonna fit and i i think that the um then i got into the habit of running some of the more like lucy gray area stuff by him first and i remember specifically um around he pete's pete's wonderful um and got has got a, a depth of information on his website and, and has commented uh, and you know volumes about things like thawing turkey cooking turkey i mean around the holidays there's there's pete's got a, a just a uh, an amazing amount of information that he's that he's put out there and so i started making a you know food safety info sheet for the holidays and said okay well pete i want to tell people to use the thermometer he goes no 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 you can't tell them to use a thermometer because some of those thermometers are really bad you need to tell them that it's a tip sensitive digital thermometer and i said well that's a lot of text and he goes doesn't matter that's what you need give them the right tool just just make sure you're 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 clear on what it is cuz cuz USDA they've got it all wrong with the with the stem biometal thermometers and then gave me like 15 papers to say look this is why i'm telling you it's wrong um and and so we we had this i mean and we still do i mean he'll uh uh, uh, a few times a year, we'll we'll have an email conversation about something, um, but this really nice, uh, I think, relationship that makes me feel really like like I know the guy really well. But I bet you he's doing this with you know hundreds of other people. Like this is just kind of what he does, um, and it's really um, you know absolutely made me a better um, better at what I do because because I didn't he he has taught me. Um, that someone's going to call me on something uh, that if I put a, a recommendation in there, I better have something to back it up with. And, and, and you and, and Doug, not to, to the same extent, but, but Pete was someone who I didn't know who really started calling me on stuff. And that was awesome. Like that's, that's what has made it, uh, has made it better. And it's, um, and I, I just, you know, I want to thank him for, for taking the time to make food safety, uh, the world of food safety better. Uh, doing stuff like that. Yeah, and that and that's and that's classic Pete. He'll it like as I said in, in my comment on the Bart blog post, he'll engage with anybody on any topic where he thinks they got it wrong. And and he, he'll he doesn't do it generally in um, uh, an obnoxious way. He does it in a very direct way, <laughs> like he's not afraid to tell people they're wrong. Um, and 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 yeah, and, and you guys um, there's a great uh, Barf blog post called uh, "Yes, Virginia, uh, you can thaw turkey on the counter," um, uh, which I th- which I think um, you know, and you guys have talked about this, and and that references Pete's um, you know room temperature uh, thawing on the counter, which is it's a it's a classic example of this kind of thing. What where one of the things that we're taught as extension professionals, or one of the things that we learn as extension professionals, is you tell people never thaw at room temperature because it's risky, but. You know what? The science behind that statement is not there. And 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 Pete has has 
call people on it and and it's 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 just gratifying to know that so despite the fact that he's retiring the HITM website with all of its information will be there and and hopefully forever because there's stuff there that doesn't exist anywhere else and and like i said looking for something on on cooling of of foods in restaurants and couldn't find anything anywhere except for one published article and the the documents on Pete's website. So anyway, um, we we wish him the best. I have been following along um, with the updates on his health, and and he he uh, did have uh, did have surgery, and then he developed a, a post op infection. But it looks like that's cleared up. And but I mean, heck, when you're 84, uh, you know those things can take the wind out of your sails. So anyway, it's good. It's it's good to, to see that he is he's although he's retiring, he's he's not going away, and and he's he's getting better. And I hope hope. We have Pete around for as long as as long as he's willing to have us. We're willing to have him. Yeah, and and I hope that we can all, um, as as he recedes from, uh, um, you know, from from comment and, and and takes time with his family. I hope we I hope we all collectively can fill the void that 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 it leaves, um, because it's because it takes time to do what he does, and he does it because he thinks it's the right thing to do. And I and I want you know that's that's the that's the goal to uh, uh, some of the stuff that um that 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 that's what he brings that that i hope we can all pick up the slack yeah and i think there'll probably be about six of us that need to work full time to fill yeah. his 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 shoes i i just i i i can't i can't believe the amount uh, that this guy has put on his website but also where he just comments on on uh, on dis- email distribution lists where like you said he would write a detailed critique of what was wrong with something yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's, uh, it's it's inspiring because it's that's uh, that's where we should be. That's it's good. So anyway, thanks thanks to Pete. Absolutely. So I would also like to talk about Tempe. Can we do that? Can we talk Tempe? We can. Time to do it. Can we do that now? Let's do that now. <laughs> um, so um, uh, we uh, and uh, we'll link back to what episodes these were, and I'll Google that quickly. But we uh, had a, a pretty um, Nice outbreak of Salmonella paratyphae B uh, in North Carolina um, uh, last year, um, and that was uh, associated with uh, unpasteurized tempeh. Uh, we talked about it on earlier episodes of the podcast, and, and this week in um, Emerging Infectious Diseases, the uh, great, really cool uh, journal that CDC uh, publishes uh, talked about that that outbreak and um, sort of go through. Uh, the illnesses and um, a little bit on how the um, the um, investigation went, and there there's a couple of things um, that I wanted to uh, highlight in this uh, in, in this report that that came out through you know back during the investigation, but now they're now they're in print and have gone through sort of all the vetting process. Um, so. Uh, this article uh, was uh, by uh, Greece et al. Um, from and, and uh, Stephanie Greece at uh, uh, at CDC. Um, the the biggest uh, thing here uh, that, that you know I just wanted to highlight: eighty nine cases, eighty seven confirmed, and two probable uh, from residents of five states um, over quite a long period of time: February 29th, May eighth, two thousand and twelve. 
um, with the majority of illnesses uh, coming um, sort of later on uh, in, uh, in in the outbreak um, and lo- looking really starting in sort of mid-April and going to the end of May. Um, but the uh, investigation sort of uh, cited a, a, a couple of things, and uh, one being that this uh, uh, the the tempeh product itself supported the growth of the salmonella paratypha was introduced from the starter culture uh, to make the product and um, just uh, you know it was kind of a, a review for our, our other listeners or for our listeners but for anybody new who hasn't isn't really familiar with this case tempeh is a, a product that's a soy product um, that's uh, fermented where you mash up and acidify um, a bunch of uh, soy soybeans and acidify them with with the vinegar and then add a starter culture to it and then incubate it um, and uh, the starter culture is a um, a fungal starter culture and, and the fungus sort of goes into the spaces between the mashed up um, soybeans and creates this really nice like cheese like uh, product for the most part tempeh in the U.S. is pasteurized. Um, this outbreak was associated with an unpasteurized uh, product, and um, that is part of the, um, you know, the the factors that, that led to this uh, um, to the illnesses. But the thing that I thought was, I mean, really cool from the conclusions here is really this this fact that um, a lot of the individuals who got sick um, didn't eat the product specifically. Um, and there was a lot of cross-contamination with this tempeh product at, um, at restaurants. Um, and the um, investigators, when they visited uh, restaurants that were associated with this outbreak, th- there were three that were most, identif- uh, f- most frequently identified um, in the uh, uh, interviews with patients. Um, the investigators saw uh, multiple opportunities for cross-contamination, um, and especially this preparation of a um, cooked unpasteurized tempeh on the same surfaces used to prepare ready foods. Uh, so that, that seems to be the, um, the, the biggest, um, uh, situation. Um, and, uh, there were 41 case patients, patients who completed the outbreak, uh, questionnaire and all of them had eaten at the restaurant, although not all of them had eaten tempeh. So, uh, I, I think just a really nice case on, um, you know, what, right from the process side of things uh, on uh, controlling Salmonella paratyphe B in, in this product through to how to handle this type of uh, product in a, in a retail, uh, you know, spot. So, yeah. Yeah. So, I, you know, the, the, the fact that they think that cross-contamination played a key role is is very interesting to me. We've we've certainly done uh, research on on cross contamination in my lab, and and continue to do research on that particular topic. And it's it's definitely something that is very interesting to me. My only my only gripe with um, uh, with the CDC on this particular one is when they, they cited a half a dozen references in support of uh, that cross contamination is important, and they didn't cite me. Um, <laughs> but I think I'll give them a pass on that. They did they did cite a couple of references that probably cited me though. So, so that, I think, I think that's okay, but, um, yeah, but, but, you know, and it would be, it would be very, and we're continuing to do research in this area to try to figure out how important cross-contamination is and what I can tell you based on some work that was done in, in Michelle's lab that, um, actually I think, I think is, 
um, has been published or it's very close to being published because we're being asked to order reprints on it is that, you know, if you're, if you're controlling cross-contamination, um, the key thing is to think about moisture. And if you think about this particular outbreak with uh, with with tempeh and with uh, fresh uh, fresh uh, fruits and vegetables that were possibly cross contaminated, what drives cross contamination is moisture. And so tempeh is, I think, a wet product. And so if you put tempeh on the counter, um, it's going to put moisture there. And then if you put uh, fresh produce, again, maybe a very moist environment. You put it there, it's gonna it's gonna transfer. So that's gonna facilitate the transfer. The work that Michelle. And, and, and others, uh, including um, Lori Friedrich in her lab and, and Dane Jensen in my lab, um, have done, have basically show that if you want to know where the bacteria go, think about where the moisture is. So in other words, if you have a, um, a, a wet piece of produce, the bacteria are going to want to be in association with that produce. If you want to facilitate uh, transfer, then you want to have a wet surface. And so that's what really drives the transfer. And again, given what we know about this outbreak and given that what we know about tempeh and about, about the food products involved, um, those, that's a wet environment. And certainly a kitchen environment is, is a wet environment in general. And so that's going to certainly facilitate transfer. But it's not, I don't want to say it's nice that this happened, but it's nice to, to see that the work that my lab and, and others are doing in cross-contamination will it does seem very much to be relevant in trying to understand how outbreaks like this happen and how people that didn't eat tempeh but but definitely got sick what that what that was and then again how we can how we can stop that you know either obviously through you know not not uh, putting foods on the same contact surface but and not having contaminated tempeh to start with but what are the factors in a kitchen that are going to help to reduce that cross contamination rate and from what I can say from the again from the work that we've done it's really largely about keeping things dry. If you keep things dry, the, the cross-contamination rates are much lower. So uh, you know, let's, let's talk about that a little bit more from a practical sense in a restaurant. In, in, this, in this situation, um, you know, or in, in any situation, I'm going into a restaurant, I'm going to do some meal preparation. I have a limited number of, um, say, they're plastic cutting boards that I'm doing my, my meal prep on. Um, it, you know, from the from the work that, that you guys have have done and, and stuff that that I've seen, it would seem to me that um, washing, you know, cleaning and sanitizing those cutting boards is is an important step. But any of the moisture residue that's left on that cutting board after a rinse is going to facilitate cross contamination more. So it's it's better for me, or a, a, a real practical step is. Is is letting those having an extra cutting board or two that are air drying, and I'm not grabbing them directly out of the dishwasher. That they may still be moist, because if that's the case, I'm going to um, transfer something, you know, potentially from and from anything that's contaminated, whether it's unpasteurized tempeh or um, you know leafy greens or or other um, you know know, potentially contaminated ready foods, making a, a much bigger bigger issue. So is it so the 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 step Don is is um, is air having an air drying process or or an extra uh, cutting boards on hand so you're not using wet cutting boards that are coming out of the the dishwasher? Is that yes? And and in fact, not to make it all about me and the work that I published, but <laughs> I'm going to make it all about me and the work that I published because that's the work that I know the best. Uh, I published uh, an article. 
uh, back in 1996 um, in the uh, the Journal of um, Food Service Systems, where we looked, we had this big project with Rutgers University uh, dining halls, and one of the th- we we've since changed the way that that project works um, and focus. We focus much more on temperature control these days uh, rather than uh, surface sanitation. But we have uh, ten years plus worth of surface sanitation data, and one of the things that we looked at was was what what can we what can we what can we do because because obviously typical food service workers don't can't see bacteria right <laughs> no, no no one can i mean only a microbiologist with with a test kit can so we looked at retrospectively what the microbiological quality of surfaces in a dining hall was and then we looked at if there if when the investigator took that sample whether they noted the, the the presence of food debris, whether they noticed the presence of moisture, and whether they noticed the presence of food debris and moisture. Now, I have to say that um, when um, uh, when we did this, we didn't we weren't looking for pathogens. We were using total bacterial count as a as an indicator. Um, so we, it's not it's not data on pathogens. But we, and then we evaluated whether um, that product failed our criteria for the sanitary quality of a surface. And we can argue about whether that's an appropriate criteria and what that is, et cetera. But what I can tell you is if you look at t- essentially 10,000 data points uh, of surface sanitation tests and you look at the ones that have no comments whatsoever about the quality, the, the, the visual appearance of that surface, the failure rate is about 6%. So what that says is that, okay, so if you if everything looks fine, you're still going to find high levels of bacteria some small amount of the time. If you visually can see food debris on that surface, that failure rate jumps from 6% to about 23%. If that surface is wet, the failure rate jumps to about 46%. And if there, the surface is wet and it contains food debris, that failure rate jumps to about 60%. So, so clearly, if, again, looking at total bacterial count as an indicator, um, the visual appearance of moisture and the visual appearance of, of food debris has a big role to play in the appearance of or in the presence of uh, at least total bacterial count as an indicator. Hmm. Well, I mean, so... In a very you know, applied world, and looking at what's in the you know the standard, we, we already talked about surf safe temperatures that someone sort of re, or surf safe and someone referring to it as the um, the the standard on on Barflog. In in there, as I just did a cursory look of the the material, it talks about letting things dry. Not from a cross-contamination standpoint, you know, specifically, um, but it, not very. It's not. It's not really as. It's not focused on as as much as what it might dictate as as how much of a factor it is with with moisture. And in fact, it only talks about air drying um, with regards to if someone's using a thermometer to take temperatures that you're going to want to uh, clean, sanitize, and let that thermometer air dry before you stick it back in for you know cross contamination 
sense. But to me, this is this might be um, an opportunity to, to to reshape some of the things that we focus on that are very. I mean, something like this is is doable. It's not. It's it's not a. Um, it, it, it's not a stretch to to have a food service operator or or an employee focus on is that is that food contact surface moist regardless of the source of that moisture because if it's moist then i i know that's going to increase my my risk of cross contamination whether it's from something that's contaminated or not um it's it's a factor i think that that's you know it's like similar things that we talked about in the past on um you know whether you know, we tell people to, to wash their fruits and vegetables um, that it that it may matter a little bit in, in log reduction, but for something like tomato, it, it matters more that they you know cut up cut out the um, around the stem scar because if there is any um, uh, infiltration uh, to to the flesh, it's going to be in that area. It's like I guess we 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 haven't we focus on things. And, and they get into the dogma and, and, and this is, this is one of the ones and now we've got a really nice case in a non meat setting, um, that, that cross contamination, uh, kind of matters. I, f- I feel like these are things that, that help us change that, that discussion. And it's, and it's a, it's an example that we can grab and say, look, this is what happened. This probably is, is a factor based on all the stuff that Schaffner did. And then the others who've, who've cited it. Um, (laughs) but, but that, that moisture, like, like you said, it matters. It's, but that message is missed, I guess, in my, in the world of transferring the, the knowledge to, um, to food handlers, like, and that that's a that's something we've got to work on. Yeah, and that was and th- and this finding that was from this 1996 article um, was completely accidental. It was like, well, so we had all of this data and we wanted to publish it, and then we'll, you dig into the data and you look for patterns and. Th- we didn't set out to to test the hypothesis that food and and the presence of food and the presence of moisture d- increases contamination. It completely fell out of the data that we had already collected. We had no idea that that there was this significant relationship. And so, um, and and again, it was very exciting to me because what it said to me is, look. You don't need a microbiologist. I mean, granted, we'll keep coming and we'll keep testing. You don't, but you don't really need a microbiologist. Guess what? If you really just want to control the problem, then make sure that you you don't have food debris and make sure you don't have moisture. And if you control those things, then guess what? Um, you'll you'll manage uh, you'll manage the problem just fine. Um, so, but but again, how do you get that out into the uh, into the 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 thinking of folks in restaurants? I don't know. I mean, they're already really busy. They already have a ton of stuff to do. Um, you know, what is the 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 change that you need to make to to flip that switch so that people care about that stuff? I, if I knew what that was, you know, I I bottle it and sell it because I I don't know what the answer is there. Well, and and I think though. The- the limitation, yeah, on caring side of things is one that's valid, but I don't think that this message even reaches them. Like, you know, one thing is we're not at the um, the knowledge or comprehension level uh, on it. Whether they choose to use a dry cutting board or not is, is a different story. I just don't think that, that it's out there that it, – I think if it's clean – and this is, you know, 
just purely my perception of spending times in kitchens, if it's cleaned and sanitized, you know, full stop, then it's good to go. Not if it's clean, sanitized, and dry. And um, so, I, I mean, I, I, you, what, this this conversation makes me wonder if, you know, you and I sat down and looked at how we would run a restaurant, how that would differ from the regulatory focus or what's in the food code or what's in, you know, serve safe that, that we're training people on and, and how different that would be. Like, you know, if we just said, okay, well, we have a limited number of risk factors that we can control and the food code says, here are the risk factors that we know uh, from a regulatory standpoint or that we want you to focus on. But, but we, you know, we're, we're practical. We're, we're in the world of, uh, of running a restaurant. Well, let's, let's figure out which are the ones that we get the most bang for the buck and which are the ones with, you know, what, what types of decisions would we make on, um, on ingredients and process and, and different things like that. Like I've never really thought about that. I mean, we, we're, we're often put into a, a situation where, where someone has made the decisions and, and we're asked for our opinion on what the risks are, but from starting from scratch, I mean, maybe we would just serve, you know, canned beans or something, but you know, I, like I, I would, I, I think that's a really interesting exercise to, to be able to overlay those, those two things of this is what I would focus on if I had a limited number of resources and I was going to run a business and we were going to have this type of concept. I think we should write that paper, Don. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. You should mention that. I just had a conference for food protection committee, uh, teleconference yesterday on, uh, the handwashing committee, which is chaired by, by our friend, Michelle Samara, Tim, uh, who's a, um, uh, public health official in New Jersey. And we as a committee are wrestling with the when to wash provisions in the food code. And one, and, and again, there's, there's data out there that show that if people actually followed the when to wash provisions in the food code, workers would spend roughly 20 minutes out of every hour washing their hands, which is, which is insane and a complete non-starter and people aren't doing it. So What's driving that when to wash provision is that according to the food code, you are supposed to wash your hands anytime you touch an exposed body part, your face, your nose, or your hair. Um, and from a, I understand why that's in the code, right? I understand about Staphylococcus and I know where Staphylococcus is found. And I understand that Staphylococcus can cause food poisoning. What I don't think happens is that I touch my face and then I touch ready to eat food and somebody gets sick, right? There's a bunch of other things that have to happen. The amount of staff that gets transferred is very small. There has to be subsequent temperature abuse. And then, you know, I, I understand that that can happen in certain scenarios, but it's insane to ask people to wash their hands every time that happens, especially if that me if the message about washing your hands gets lost in a situation where you're having a bowel movement. I mean, believe me, that's when I want somebody to wash their hands. And guess what? Even on top of that, what I really want is I really want a policy so that if a worker has um, a, a diarrhea, that they can feel comfortable not coming to work, <laughs> you know? So if I'm, if I was a restaurant manager and I'm trying to manage risk, the first thing I'm going to tell people is don't worry about washing your hands every time the food code says to, but here are the situations where I want you to tell me, and here's what we're going to do about it. And here are the situations where I absolutely want you to wash your hands. And the rest of this stuff, honestly, between you and me, it's not that important, which, which is a horrible situation to be in. You don't want to tell people, don't worry about 
washing your hands, right? But but it's if you tell people to wash your hands every time the food code says to do it, it it's it it's it's not sustainable. Yeah, and it's not sustainable and it's I mean you, you highlighted this. It's not reducing in a lot of those situations, it's it's not a public health uh, uh, it's not a public health control measure because of those other parameters that have to be in place for to make it a risk. Um, yeah, well, or maybe it is a public health control parameter, but you know, so are a lot of crazy things that we don't do, like having a restaurant that only serves canned beans, right? Exactly, exactly. I so I mean, this brings up a point that I've that I've uh, talked about a few times. I, Don, I really need to get involved with CFP. <laughs> you do, Ben. So, so I'm. Let's talk in After Dark about what I need to do and how you can help me with that. And other than I need to sign up and actually pay and go, but I, I just feel like this is um, as as I move on in the things that I'm interested in. This is a place I gotta. I I, I feel like I I would um, provide something and and get a lot out of it. So, so there. <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna do it, Don. I want to do it. Good. I I'll, I'll make a note. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> I have a, I have a, I'll make a note on this note card. I almost took a picture of this and posted it on, on Facebook today. I have a, uh, a post-it note here. It just has the word Phoebus on it and it's underlined. <laughs> Excellent. So, so I'm going to, I'm going to take that one off and I'm going to write after dark CFP. Cool. Cool. I'm show notes for after dark now. Yes. Yeah. Good. Um, so what else what else do you want to talk about? I I picked the last one. I was I was uh you know what? <laughs> I want to ask you a question. Um and oh there's several, there's so so many questions I can ask you. Um Ben, what do what do cantaloupe and baseball have in common? Well, let me let me think, Don. <laughs> So, so I'm, 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 so I, I seriously want you to answer this question, but I will, I will set it up for, for you and for the listeners. So this is a, a post by, um, Bill Marler, who's a, a food safety lawyer. Uh, he runs a website called food safety news and he had, um, uh, a recent post on, on August 17th, um, entitled what do cantaloupe and baseball have in common? At least a baseball won't kill you. Um, and I'll read, I'll read from selected parts of this post. Um, so Bill writes, I stopped being a fan of Alex Rodriguez years ago when he left the Mariners, so I was not that particularly bothered when he was banned from baseball for steroid use. Um, and so and so Bill goes on to lay out an argument that what should happen, essentially, if you want – here's – again, reading from the article. If you want to change the direction of baseball overnight, change the incentives. If the Yankees have been banned from baseball for a year and a half, not A-Rod, banning the Yankees, you can bet that no baseball player would touch um, steroids again. So uh, what does cantaloupe have to do with baseball? Well, much in addition to both being round. Bill's, Bill's a funny writer. Um, uh, like the players in, and, the, and the baseball industry, incentives are wrong with cantaloupe growers, actually all food and the retail industry. And so uh, Bill goes on to say that um, um, retailers distance themselves. So so um, let's see. In, in the year before, a third-generation cantaloupe grower had been in, in, enticed by a broker shipper preferred by Walmart and Kroger to expand its market nationwide. An auditor recommended by Walmart inspected the farm and packing shed in 2011. Cantaloupes were being washed by unchlorinated listeria-tainted water. The farm, as with most food audits, got a superior rating of 96%. That was the 
green light for the cantaloupes to ship to your local Walmart or Kroger. Those same retailers distance themselves from such behavior, clucking constantly, I love this, about food safety from farm to fork and creating a culture of food safety. And he uses... um, Uh, Richard Fingers there around farm to fork and culture of food safety. They hire auditors as a middleman in the food safety chain to give them cover to ignore food safety risks. Um, So does this sound a bit like uh, players uh, facing suspension over and over again? Because he's saying, you know, that it's not uh, it's not the right people are not being not being uh, punished. So he says you want to change the direction of food safety overnight, change the incentives. Um, want to make food safer from farm to fork? Pay fair wages to the farm workers and fair prices to the growers. They're both an investment in safe food. You want to change the incentive of a retailer who sells you food that can make you sick or kill you? Have them face jail time or fines if they do. So this is, um, uh, in, in, the, in the words of uh, uh, Jonathan Swift, a modest uh, proposal. But I think, I think Bill is, is quite serious about this. So what do you, what do you think about what he's suggesting here? Um, I, I, I like, I guess I like it. Um, and this, this actually comes to a bit of follow-up that we had from, uh, episode 45 when we talked about that North Carolina farm bill provision of, um, uh, rebuttable something, um, rebuttable presumption. That's what it was. Um, a little bit, because I actually think that in, um, I know from, from following what Bill does, that that he often focuses on retailers for for a bunch of reasons, and, and Walmart, uh, in this in, in this situation with Jensen Farms, um, Walmart in the past uh, with uh, a couple of other outbreaks, he's got some some real focus on Walmart, and maybe it's because they're they're big and 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 they they have a lot of um, a, a lot of brand issues, not issues, but the, the, you know they they have a lot of um, risk management inside to, to protect it. I, I think that, I mean, I think he's, I think he's, he's right. Um, and I don't, I don't know on the criminal side of things. I mean, I don't know that, that, that world so much. I, I guess, let me boil it down to the simplistic look of, um, if I buy something from you, uh, as a, as a consumer, regardless of who you are, if you're the retailer and you didn't make the product, well, you, you put enough, uh, work into bringing that product into your your um, your retail store or into your restaurant, um, and and then you you market it to me as something that I should buy. That if if it's damaging to me, then then you should be on the hook um, uh, as well as the person that produced it because I couldn't I didn't connect directly with that person who produced it, and you you kind of vouch for them. And and I th- I mean I think he's. Um, highlighted with this this analogy, um, uh, and especially that 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 sentence you you talked about uh, liking on the clucking, um, it, it's they and this isn't you know this isn't just retailers. This is anybody who's going to interact with that end consumer. I put restaurants in the same place that they've got to do a really good job making sure that their um, their suppliers aren't making people sick, and and the more incentive for them to do that including being being able to put them on the hook for um for for illnesses i i think that i i'm i'm a i'm a fan of that um i i think that's a that's a good thing um because because without it it, it and this isn't this is actually not about sort of um you know, fingering the the retailers is doing a bad job. I think without it, their pressure isn't enough to change the suppliers. Um, and that's that. That's my 
with all the stuff that I've that I've done in the last couple of years with small farms and and farmers markets, um, there's no there's relatively little market incentive for for those who engage directly with consumers to to really pay attention to food to food safety because the consumer, um, for the most part assumes that it's not going to make them sick. The retailers have, and, and uh, institutional buyers and food service buyers have a lot more pressure. They can they can set different parameters. And I think that's what Bill's getting at is they've set some parameters and set some standards and then they've outsourced whether someone's hitting those standards to somebody else and then use that as a, as a gate of entry into the, into the store. Um, either and if we look back at, at outbreak over uh, outbreak after outbreak that have been linked to places that have that have been audited or had some sort of verification, um, clearly that that system needs some some refining. Um, either the standards got to change or how the standards are verified's got to change. And and I, uh, his his point that I'm reading into this is is um, maybe the standards are fine. What we need to have are are buyers that that enforce those standards or that that really really value someone hitting those standards and I, and I I don't see I I can't see that being a a problem um like I I can't see that being something that that's a bad thing in in my mind yeah and you know and 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 you you and and Doug and others including Roy Costa have published um you know a nice article on what's broken in the in the auditing system I would love speaking of uh of Roy and of and of the IAFP meeting uh because and 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 debating this whole thing makes me think of of the current controversy session at IAFP um and you know I would love to see Bill and Frank Giannis, Bill, Bill Marler, the author of The Post, and Frank Giannis from Walmart, who is a big proponent of food safety culture, even as a book with that, with that name, um, uh, debate this. Because I think that, that there's probably a common ground in there somewhere. I mean, on the one hand, you know, is, are we expecting that Walmart is going to now hire its own auditors? I mean, I, again, the, the question is, well, I guess there's a couple of questions. Is, is are the auditing standards correct? And if they're not, we should change them. Are the auditors trained? And if not, we should change that. And then, what's the accountability, right? Because if, as I've heard in my sort of simplistic understanding of this, the incentive. So if if an auditor goes in and says the company is fine, then the that company gets to supply. Um, the the retailer. Well, I mean, let's assume it's retail, and and then everybody's happy because everybody people are selling product, people are buying product, people are making money. If the auditor goes in and finds a problem, well, now there's two problems because number one, that company is pissed off because they can't sell their product, and the customer, the buyer of that product, the retailer is pissed off because now they have a shortfall in supply, and 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 so no one is happy. So there's no What's the what's the incentive for an auditor to do a thorough job? Except, and then the good news is in all of that is that food safety problems are a rare event. They're not a zero probability, but they're a rare events. So if you if you let somebody skate on an audit, chances are nothing bad will happen. But occasionally, bad, really bad stuff does happen. And so, how, what, how do you create that incentive such that? everybody is net happier when somebody fails an audit, you know, and, and I, and I know enough about audits and I hear enough companies complain about audits that 
you know, some companies, if, if you sell to a bunch of people and they all have different auditing standards, literally every week somebody is coming in and, and giving and giving you an audit. And again, to, to harken back to our conversation about the food code, you're getting dinged because people aren't washing their hands after they touch their face, right? So what that says to me is that maybe the auditing standards are broken and we're not, because if it's really all about risk and if we take a HACCP type approach or a risk-based approach, then some things are going to be really important, like chlorinating your wash water. And other things are going to be less important, you know, and again, who knows what those are, like whether people wash their hands after they touch their face or not. And so moving to a truly risk-based system where there are consequences, I think is the way forward. But that's easy for me to say, sort of sitting here in my, in my ivory tower. I know in the real world, it's a lot harder. Well, and I think we, we've got to help like for us in our ivory towers and part of the reason for us writing that that article about auditing with and engaging Roy specifically was was to to help move this dialogue along and I think the the next step um at least the next step in like action in 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 my world is um our our good friend Gordon Haburn and and I are going to put on a a workshop this year um at the the Dubai Food Safety Conference on how do you how should you use an audit so his Gordon and Doug and I had a really good conversation about this um, about a year ago, um, where so let's let's assume the standards fine. Let's let let's we'll throw that one out and, and say that there there are people that are looking at standards and updating them, but but the um, from and this was when when Gordon was in the auditing world and, and he's been involved with. Um, uh, the BRC standard. He has uh, worked for Tata Group, I think it's called, the the folks that make Tetley Tea, mm-hmm. on uh, purchasing and, and evaluating suppliers. And um, you know, for for our listeners, Gordon Gordon's in in this world of standards and evaluating suppliers. And and his comment to to Doug and I were was, as an auditor, or as a certification body. I have a standard that a customer is going to we, – we agree on. We give them some um, uh, some parameters, and they say, well, these are the things that we're really interested in. And then we go and audit them, and there's a score associated with it. But then there's a lot of other stuff that comes out of, you know, depending on the, the auditing company, that comes out of that audit that um, has to do with some of the stuff that you just mentioned, Don, on, on, on specific risks. You know, maybe they, they did very well in certain things that are low risk and they did have some deficiencies. They still got some sort of a, a rating that was acceptable to you as the buyer, but in the areas that they got deficiencies in um, require some, some re relooking uh, at, at that, either the standard more in depth with that supplier or the supplier themselves. And, and Gordon's comment um, was that, that often companies that require audits don't know how to deal with them. They, they, they look at the, they look for a score or some sort of threshold that allows somebody in the door, but those audits generate thousands and thousands of data points that they can make better decisions on. And that takes someone at that buying company to really in depth, look at those, um, at, at those, those audits. And that, I mean, that, to, that's what this, this workshop's all about is, okay, so you arrive at a standard and, and that's fine. What is in that audit that you can really learn from and then how do you match up what's going on in the primary literature in the outbreaks that that you need to then add to your audit for the next year or what you know these, these things are not 
um, especially on the the buyer side of things, I'm going to create a standard, and then that's my standard. Um, it, it's got to be this this sort of living, breathing uh, standard that 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 can change over time when new information comes up. But I mean, I guess to, to Gordon's point, which I which I agree with. I mean, we Doug and 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 Roy and I. Well, Roy's an auditor, so Doug and I have been fairly critical of of auditors in the past, and and I guess the issue isn't that audits suck so much it's that the audit the current system of how we audit and how we use those audits probably sucks if we can point to certain examples or sucked in certain examples so how do we how do we move forward and and fix it um and and the i think the the big place to learn from is is what's happened i mean just coming back to to CFP and and uh, risk-based inspections uh, for for restaurants that 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 um, public health or environmental health have really focused on across the U.S. that that whole process changed and and you were you were part of that and, and probably viewed it a lot more up close than I did from floors, walls, and ceilings in an inspection to looking at someone's process and evaluating whether they're doing what they're supposed to do for risks, that's, I think, where we need to move this sort of audit situation is to look at, okay, we're generating thousands and thousands of data points. How do we, how are, are we measuring the right things and how do we, how do we fix it? How do we um, ensure that there's auditor consistency and that the standards are right, but then also that someone does something with it afterwards, makes a decision, and that's the that you know that's analogous to the to posting restaurant grades, like that that as an end user I can make a decision based on what you found in an inspection. Um, as a uh, as a buyer, whether I'm I'm you know Frank's in Frank's crew at Walmart or uh, someone else's crew elsewhere. Um, that I'm that my company is making a decision based on this audit, not just that the audit got them in the door. Yeah, so I have a couple of comments and then and then a request, and then I'm going to suggest that uh, we call it a show. So, so in terms of so as somebody who works with the food industry, you know, through short courses and things, I know people in the industry love to collect data, and certainly audit data. I never thought about this before, but audit data is, are no is no exception. And so I, I think it's great that you guys are proposing to do this workshop because I suspect, like with so many pieces of data, people in the food industry they're collecting. And collecting and collecting, and they're never using it for anything. And and one of the the things that that your comments made me think about was the wonderful paper um, that Craig Hedberg and others published, where they looked at restaurant inspection results as predictors of food safety. And what they discovered was that most inspection result, you know, most criteria in an inspection did not have a significant influence on predicting food safety, but a couple of them did. That's the kind of analysis we need to say, okay, yeah, we're, we're collecting all of these things. Which are the ones that really matter? And so the, the I mean, certainly I think what you guys are, are doing in, in, the, in Dubai is wonderful. And my request is that you and Gordon write that up as a, an IAFP workshop proposal to have in Indianapolis in 2014, because it seems to me like that would be very well attended. And certainly we don't want to deprive the people that are not able to make it to Dubai. And then you'll have a chance to, to do a dry run or a test run in Dubai, but, but then uh, please consider doing it in Indianapolis. No, noted and was already uh, on our, on our radar. Um, that was, yeah, Gordon and I kind of thought we would, we would do this. We would, you know, we know we'll be at this, this meeting together. Um, 
the the folks over there um, asked for something new, so we're going to use this to develop the new material. But that was the plan was to put it in for uh, workshop proposal at IFP. So I, I um, that you think there might be some support there. That's yeah, there I, I might know somebody on the program committee or the board. Well, hey, um, and and I just to to bring it back to your comment on on the data, I think that uh, absolutely that analysis. Similar to what Craig and it was and Ruth Petran was the um, I think the lead author on that that paper that um, um, that you're talking about. Um, similar to that and some work that Tim Jones did out of uh, Tennessee Department of Health and um, a guy I think it was last name was Cruz in Miami Dade about 10 or 12 years ago looking at inspection results for restaurants and outbreaks. I think that that very that that same analysis if we can look at um, outbreaks that have happened and get our hands on, which probably some of this stuff is public now knowledge now um, from, you know, those uh, inspection or those audit reports, um, you know, associated with uh, PCA. PCA is in a different category, but, you know, looking at uh, uh, Dole, um, spinach uh, uh, outbreak up until you know anything that's a, that's available in processing to look at what are those common factors for the, for those outbreaks i think that that work's not been done and i think it really needs to be done uh, i mean and i'd love to be part of that cuz i think that's well and i think what what people will get you know nervous about is that it'll show that audits have little utility and i think that what that, that's the wrong way to look at it it's it's that audits need to to change so they are more useful well and if audits show little utility people should be dancing in the streets because it's like hey we now we don't have to do this anymore let's let's focus on making audits that actually do something useful and thanks thanks and i again apologize i'm sure ruth doesn't listen but apologies to ruth that she was the lead author on that article that's petran white and hedberg uh, health department inspection criteria more likely to be associated with restaurant outbreak restaurants in minnesota and and we'll link to that in the show notes awesome well, good. Well, your everything is noted in your request. We will get that in. Fantastic. So I think that's a show. I think that's a show. So that would be uh, that, that's that's a wrap, Don. Oh, we we didn't mention a couple of things that we are one thing at least um, that uh, if you're uh, listening to the podcast and you have feedback for us, you want to give us um, uh, any suggestions, feel free to email us. And also, um, which helps spread the word on the on the podcast, if you can go into iTunes and rate, uh, rate the podcast there, either it's, you know, one star or no stars or five stars or whatever you want to give us and, and provide comments. That's a great place uh, for, for others who might be looking for food safety information and podcasts to learn about things. So, um, so please go ahead and do that. As, as always, Don, it's a pleasure. Glad to get back into this um, with you. It feels like we haven't talked forever. I know that's not true, but it feels like we didn't, we did a podcast like months ago, but it was only weeks ago. So, so I'm glad. I'm, I'm very, very happy to, to, to virtually speak with you today. No, to really speak with you, to virtually see you. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> it's, it's, good, it's good to talk to you too, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, bye-bye. Bye-bye.
All right. So you have you have a hard out at um, in about half an hour. So that's that's perfect. Thanks for for seeing that. Yeah, I have a. Uh, um, so I, I'm I'm going to Brazil, as you know, in uh, November, and there was a uh, extension conference, like the first time that all of extension in North Carolina has gotten together for a conference since I've li- since I've been here, which used to happen all the time, apparently. Yeah, we used we're supposed to be a requirement. Like New Jersey, um, we're supposed to do annual conference once a year, and it, it kind of um, as extension has. I don't know, morphed over the years. We don't do it anymore. It used to be like we go for a couple of days, we go to 4-H camp, we'd sleep over, or we go to a hotel, and then, then it's like, well, we can't afford to travel and we can't afford the hotel, and so it'll be um, it'll be a day. And now I don't think we even do it anymore. Yeah, we. I think that's probably the, the same thing. Like I think it used to be. Before, I mean, I think it was probably more before there were webinars and webex and internet and lots of other things that were going on um so uh it's yeah so anyway that's going on the reason why i'm why that's hard out is because that they're sort of re uh, extension administrations rejuvenating that um and it's november 4th to 6th which are the exact dates that i'm going to be in brazil um so i'm not going to be able to attend but I've, I've agreed to organize a couple of organize a couple of panels or a couple of educational sessions so i've got a conference call for half an hour about one of them on local foods access um which is not my world but but i've done some food safety and local foods that i'm a part of that so i'm going to find out Hopefully, in the next uh, month or so, find people who it is their world, so they can come in and talk about it. Well, that was that was my next question: is how long is your eleven thirty? And I'm I'm delighted to hear that it's only half an hour. It, I'm delighted as well, <laughs> because I'm sure there's something very important in your outlook after that. The PCV show, <laughs> the outlook calendar. Uh, so yeah, I'll be I'll be joining that, and at, uh, while we're at the PCV show, I might be doing something else on my computer. And then, oh, I, I you know you're in charge almost. Uh, I, but I really never have to do anything if if we look at uh, uh, the uh, the past uh, uh, <laughs> um, uh, uh, the precedent that's been set. <laughs> I, I've, I've very, I'm really just there to uh, to make sure things are on task. Okay. Um, so then uh, later uh, today, I've got a Skype uh, uh, appointment with uh, one of your grad students, Hannah, as well, to talk about stuff that she did this summer. So awesome. It's, it's a big day. She, uh, I know I mentioned this already, and I don't think she listened to After Dark, but I can't tell you how great a job she did this summer. Like, um, and and I'll, uh, once we, after I, I Skype with her today and she's going to do some analysis, uh, I want to share the um, sort of the output, but but she got to like, I mean, we, no one, no one in the U.S. has any data on on what she did, um, to the point that when our folks here um, shared a little bit with the FNS folks at um, USDA, they've asked, they're like, "Wow, we don't know any of this. Um, can you can you share your your data or what your findings are so we can then maybe help um, focus our resources on on um, summer feeding sites?" So anyway, Hannah got it to a, a like a ridiculous amount of places and got a bit, bunch of really, well, I, I looked at the raw data and it looks really, um, some really interesting stuff. So, yeah, she, she really, she really enjoyed herself. And unfortunately, 
for the field of food safety, I think her real passion is nutrition and community nutrition, which is why it was so great to go and do like, you know, work with, with actual people with the research that you're doing instead of like with bacteria, which is the work that she's doing for me, bacteria that, that, that are not cooperating all the time. But, um, yeah, unfortunately, well, fortunately for the world, she wants to go on and get a PhD because I'm a, I'm a believer that, uh, People with PhDs are actually help people, um, but she wants to go to graduate school in nutrition. So we're going to lose her from the field of food safety. But um, anyway, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm delighted. It, it does not surprise me that she did a great job for you. She's she's been just wonderful, and I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna miss her when uh, when she graduates and leaves my lab. Oh well, hopefully, um, hopefully we'll still interact with her uh, when she's in the world of nutrition, and maybe we've influenced her her food safety interests so that she can help bridge that uh, that gap. Between nutrition and food safety, which is sometimes realized. Yeah, well, we've definitely uh, we've definitely impacted her brain. So, <laughs> like toxoplasmosis. <laughs> uh, we're the toxo of her brain. That's good. <laughs> um, cool. So, yeah. Uh, hey, oh, can you before we get into the after dark note about CFP? Mm-hmm. Can you? I can't find the email that you sent me with the actual Brazil Visa company name oh okay sure do you know like off yes oh uh, yeah no no problem i will i will find that and i'll send that to you i thought you were saying you were going to talk about the 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 lovely picture you sent me via email just recently (laughs) (laughs) that was so great you you request didn't you i did and and none of the other a-holes sent me pictures (laughs) i thought it was fitting it was perfect it's exactly i mean it's just like i just expected two more and then I do I do a selfie of me flipping the bird, and then we'd put that up on a website. That would be it. That would be the and no one would where it came from, and someone would stumble upon it at some point and be like, "Did you know your pictures up here?" <laughs> no, but how well, some dick thinks that I'm a food safety a hole. <laughs> and it would be that'd be awesome. That was my I actually debated trying to put on a mask like we have this Spider Man mask that's around here. So um, you'd be incognito. But I, really I, could, wanna... I could I could put a black strip over your eyes in Photoshop. That'd be awesome. That is exactly what needs to go out there. <laughs> I, I so I thought about the Spider-Man mask, but what I really wanted was like one of those Mexican wrestling masks. <laughs> yes. So I'm gonna have to invest in one of those, and then I'll get another picture. Um, but in the short term, yeah, just put a black little ba- black strip, so no one will be able to just like a, a very thin one, so so people will definitely be able to identify, but not really that right. I can deny it and say no that's not me that's someone else right um yeah that was that was a pretty good pretty fun little discourse last night um so okay so brazil was on my list oh yeah so cfp so so what do i uh, i guess this is me not doing any uh real follow-up from the last time we talked about this i really want to come and do and like not just i guess here's here's my plan Let, let me run this by you do you think that this year um it's what April in Orlando. Do you think that it would be useful for me to just come and observe and then jump in? Or should I get involved with one of the councils? Like, or am I even able to get on something now in, in, um, uh, preparation for that, for, for April? That, that's a good question. I don't know if, um, uh, if, if, if it's too late to join a council, um, uh, let's see. Uh, I think it, I can never, it's not, it's like food pro people love us when we do this protect. Well, that's what's an after dark. Yeah. 
Yeah, foodprotect.org. Um, let's see. Become a member. Download application. Conference council. It's a beautiful looking website. Um, I wonder. If- yeah, I, I don't. I don't know whether it's too late to apply or not. I can. I can. There's an email about that. Um, I will find that. Um, that with a deadline. But so, what I would suggest that you do is. So, have you joined yet? No. no. So go. So the first step is you got to be a member. Okay. I mean, so you pay the you pay the money and then and then you're a member. Um, and then you'll also start getting emails that remind you about stuff like joint like joining a council. Um, it's if you if you enjoy um um as Otto von Bismarck said, uh, <laughs> a paraphrasing uh, laws and sausages being made. If that if that's fun for you, then you'll enjoy it. So it's basically a bunch of people sitting in a room arguing using like I have never seen Robert's rules used with such precision and and finesse. So if you enjoy Robert's rules, if you enjoy arguing about food safety, um, it's worth doing. So. I'm, I, I want, I'm not sure I do. No, actually, I think, um, but I'm going to come anyway. Yeah, <laughs> I would, I would definitely come, uh, to the meeting. And, um, so yeah, so become a member, come to the meeting and then at the meeting you can, and you, I mean, so I, I'm on council or ha- in the past I have been on council three, uh, which is science and technology, but there's also a council on laws and regulations, um, uh, which, uh, which includes, I think, um, uh, I'm trying to think of people that you might know that have been on the different councils, but but laws and regulations is council one, and administrative education and certification is council two. So you probably have interests in in all three councils, and you can. The good news is is that you can move from council to council if you're not on a council and just kind of watch the fun. Um, and 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 it's just it's if you like that kind of thing, it's just it's very it's very entertaining. So but. So I will I will send you an email about the visas from Brazil, and I will send you an email about uh, applying to be on a council. Chances are the first year you will not get on a council. Like So the first year I applied, I was an alternate for Council 3. But after that, I joined some committees. And what they do is they look at who you are. They look at committee balance. And then um, – and the, the thing is with um, – with laws and regulations and administration, there's a couple of academics. With science and technology, they can have up to one third academics. So, so there's potentially more room um, on that on that council. Although it's it's kind of cryptic as to how they make the appointment process. I mean, basically, the executive board I think just sort of decides on who they want. So, um, but yeah, it'll cost a little bit of money. Again, you you it's it's. You have to pay to go to the meeting. It's you know no one's going to just because you're an academic and you expect to have your way covered. That's not going to happen. Um, so, um, but it's it is it is good fun. It is it is it is a lot of fun. Well, and I am uh, I have as you've told me this, I have sent my uh, application to Elise Wright um, to become a member, and I'm I'm planning on going, and I have no problem paying my way. I think it's useful. So I just I feel like you know now that I'm sort of in that next phase of what I do in my career, hopefully I you know get tenure, but it's kind of out of my hands now. This is something that I've you know you've talked about um, a lot, and I just feel like I I would be useful there. You definitely would, uh, yeah, without a doubt. Then then I'm gonna go. Um, cool, thanks. Sure. But yeah, let me know if I can join, and if I I I don't know, yeah, 
I'll, I'll be there. And maybe this year is the best way just for me to sit back and watch. And, yeah. And well, and yeah, and you, it's kind of out of your hands, whether you'll get placed on a council, even if you did apply. And if you, even if you, if you did apply, chances are you would only be an alternate just because you, you don't have any experience with the, uh, with the conference, but you know, it's like a catch 22. You, if you don't go, you don't get experience. And if you don't have experience, you'll never get to go. So you just have to just sort of jump in and see what happens. Oh, I feel like I'm like back in the world now because <laughs> like, I kind of like did nothing for a couple of weeks. And, That's um, nice though. It was really nice. And then, um, and then we got to spend some time at the hospital last week. So that was cool. <laughs> I think it's hilarious that your son injured himself at the doctor's office. That's the best part of it. When you told me the story about that he was that he got hurt, that that I didn't see that until I saw on, on Facebook that he injured himself at the doctor's office. Yes, um, and the doctor felt that it was <laughs> they need to call an ambulance. <laughs> it, I, it was a shocking size cut. It, I have not like I. I'm not like queasy typically, but I looked at it and it, it's different when it's like your kid, right? I yeah. looked at, oh my gosh, don't make a face like it's really bad, but it's really bad. And mm-hmm. then someone to cover it up. So we don't have to look at it. Jack kept telling me he didn't want to look at Sam's uh, hole, the hole in Sam's head. <laughs> no kidding. He's just a smart kid. Yeah. It was, uh, it, it was like a quarter sized um, cut. And I think it's probably worse because he's, you know, he's two and he's got all that elastin, I guess, in his, in his skin, so any mm-hmm. time it opens up, it like spreads really quick. Uh-huh. Um, so and where where is the cut? Directly above his eyebrow. So it's not it's it like he's gonna have this the rest of his life. Oh yeah, yeah. It's it was thirteen stitches. Oh my god. We haven't seen what it looks like underneath. He's still got like mm-hmm. that goes over top of it. Um, so uh, yeah, so we haven't seen that full the the full end of it yet. Yeah, I have I have a scar like right above my eye, not not thirteen stitches scar, but from when I was a kid at my grandparents' house, and they have an old. Um, so my grandfather's great grandfather was a sea captain, and they have a like a, a chest that was on the on the the boat that he that he sailed, the clipper ship that he sailed, and uh, I fell into that and, and hit my head on it, and uh, I don't remember it, but my mom could tell the story, but uh, but I still have a scar from that. So, but boy, this gonna, it's going to be a good one. <laughs> it's gonna be an awesome one. Um, it, I don't know where. Like, it looks like it might be right on his eyebrow or right above it. So it's well, probably. Maybe maybe he'll have bushy eyebrows. He may he may have some bushy eyebrows. Um, Jack actually has a, a cut in his other in his eyebrow, the other side, that he fell. Um, not nearly. He didn't get stitches, and didn't, it wasn't nearly as large. But he did around Christmas last year. Fell into our bed. Mm. As- our children run and fall. That's their thing. I think that's what kids do. I, I, and there was a recent episode of Back to Work where, where Merlin and Dan were talking about the like scars that they have by their eyes. And, and anyway, I, I think it's just a it's just a just a thing that kids do. Maybe boys especially. Well, I'm happy to get that all. Um, yeah, it was it was pretty exciting. Uh, and there's no like skull. Well, there may be a skull fracture, but they can't do anything of it. And he doesn't have any symptoms of anything like internal bleeding. So. Oh. Yeah, so it was pretty. It was pretty awesome. <laughs> what else? Anything? So we, so we call it an after dark, and then do we, some we should spray after dark. We should. All right. Well, um, that was fun. All, All right. right. We'll, we'll we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.